Hey, it's Mike, and this podcast is brought to you by my books. Seriously, though, it actually is. I make my living as a writer, so as long as I keep selling books, I can keep writing articles over at Muscle for Life and Legion and recording podcasts and videos like this and all that fun stuff. Now, I have several books, but the place to start is Bigger, Leaner, Stronger if you're a guy and Thinner, Leaner, Stronger if you're a girl. Now, these books, they basically teach you everything you need to know about dieting, training, and supplementation to build muscle lose fat, and look and feel great without having to give up all the foods you love or grind away in the gym every day doing workouts that you hate. Now, you can find my books everywhere. You can buy books online like Amazon, Audible, iBooks, Google Play, Barnes Noble, Kobo, and so forth. And if you're into audiobooks like me, you can actually get one of my books for free, one of my audiobooks for free with a 30-day free trial of Audible. To do that, go to muscleforlife.com forward slash audiobooks. That's www.musclefor.com life.com forward slash audiobooks and you can see how to do this. Now also if you like my work in general then I really think you're going to like what I'm doing with my supplement company Legion. Now as you probably know I'm not a fan of the supplement industry. I mean I've wasted who knows how many thousands of dollars over the years on worthless supplements that really do nothing and I've always had trouble finding products that I actually thought were worth buying and recommending. And well, basically, I had been complaining about this for years, and I decided to finally do something about it and start making my own products. And not just any products, but really the exact products that I myself have always wanted. So a few of the things that make my supplements unique are, one, they're 100% naturally sweetened and flavored. Two, all ingredients are backed by peer-reviewed scientific research that you can verify for yourself because on our website, we explain why we've chosen each ingredient. And we also cite all supporting studies so you can go dive in and check it out for yourself. Three, all ingredients are also included at clinically effective dosages, which are the exact dosages used in the studies proving their effectiveness. This is important, of course, because while something like creatine is proven to help improve strength and help you build muscle faster, if you don't take enough, then you're not going to see the benefits that are seen in scientific research. And four, there are no proprietary blends, which means that you know exactly what you're buying. All our formulations are 100% transparent, both with the ingredients and the dosages. So you can learn more about my supplements at www.legionathletics, that's L-E-G-I-O-N, athletics.com. And if you like what you see and you want to buy something, use the coupon code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and you'll save 10% on your order. All right, thanks again for taking the time to listen to my podcast, and let's get to the show. Hey, hey, Mike here. Thanks for stopping by uh, to listen to another episode of the podcast. In this podcast, I'm going to take a few questions from my Google moderator, which I'll link down below. Um, if you if you don't know what that is, uh, you can submit questions and then other people can vote on them if they would like them answered or not, basically. Uh, and then you can vote on other people's questions. So I will, every other podcast or so, I, I take questions from there and then answer them. So the questions this week are going to be related to working out through soreness. If a muscle group is sore, can you still work it out? Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, and then we're going to talk about carbs, eating carbs at night, uh, even before bed. Is that good or bad? Uh, and then last but not least is going to be a question. It, I, I didn't pull it from the moderator. It's probably in there somewhere because I got asked it fairly frequently. And that is how do you reduce your calories when you're cutting? How do you do that correctly? Um, and then also I'll talk about, because it kind of goes with it, 
how do you increase your activity level? Uh, how much can you increase your activity level when you're cutting before it starts to become a problem? Um, and this is particularly relevant because when you start cutting, uh, you know, things are going to go smoothly for, let's say, four or five weeks. And then what usually happens for most people is at that point, the fat loss starts to really slow down, almost becomes negligible. Uh, and, and then what? So you have to either move more or eat less. And how do you do that correctly? Uh, so you can uh, not just not only reach your, your goal when you're cutting, which is you know, reaching your target body uh, composition or body weight, but also do it in the in the least painful way, in the way that's going to you know preserve as much muscle as possible, preserve as much strength as, and, and uh, workout intensity as possible, help you avoid you know hunger. Well, I mean, avoid major problems with hunger and cravings and so forth. Um, yeah, so those are going to be the main topics of the podcast, and then uh, I want to talk about one other thing, kind of a cool concept that I ran into in a book that I was reading, um, and it's a concept of what kind of scorecard you're keeping in life and how that can affect your perception of, of, of things, especially re- relating to success and happiness. Um, yeah, so when we get there, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. All right, so let's just start with well, I'll start with the one that I get asked most frequently, which is this uh, reducing calories when you're cutting um, or increasing activity levels. So uh, first, uh, f- something that is worth uh, clarifying right off the bat is when you start cutting, um, like what I like to do is I like to start in a 20 to 25% calorie deficit, which means that I'm going to be eating 20 to 25% fewer calories than I'm burning every day. Um, and the, the point where you want to start is where you are currently eating. So some people have uh, particularly fast or particularly slow metabolisms, and the standard type of TDE calculation, uh, you know, if you do like a catch McArdle on what, what your total daily energy expenditure should be, obviously any, any sort of formula, is it's never 100% accurate. It's kind of like a, it gives you a, 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 a semi-accurate guess, basically. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll hear this mainly from guys that have either reverse dieted, meaning they've slowly increased their calories over time, or they just have fast metabolisms where, according to the Catch McArdle, their TDE is, let's say, 2,800 calories, but they're eating 3,500 calories a day and their weight is staying the same, So, uh, which, which indicates, uh, obviously, a, a state of neutral energy balance. They're not over, if you were to take their weekly food intake, because, I mean, most people, unless they're following a very, very strict meal plan, their calorie intake is going to fluctuate on a day-to-day basis. One day, maybe it's 3,100. Next day, it's 3,800. But let's say it averages out to 3,500 a day. And when you look at their total energy intake versus energy expenditure over a week, it balances out. They're in a state of more or less neutral energy balance. So I'll uh, I'll hear pretty frequently from guys like that that are then asking, okay, so they want to start cutting. Should they take their catch McArdle TDE and, and start with, you know, eating, let's say, 75 to 80 percent of those calories or should they start from where they're currently eating and the answer is start from where you're currently eating if you're eating 3500 calories a day uh, and you want to let's say start with a 20 percent deficit obviously now you're going to take 700 calories off that that's where you start um, you it's just not necessary like the reason why is because if you were to start from let's say 70 percent of the 2800 number that's a large deficit to jump right into. That's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to, you're going to be hungry. Um, you're going to be particularly hungry. You're probably going to have problems with cravings. Your workouts are going to suck. It's just going to be a shock to your body. 
And and then also what it, it doesn't ideally ideally before you're cutting, you would have your, your food intake uh, as high as you could possibly get it without just continually putting on fat, essentially. Because what that does is it buys you room for when you're cutting. So if, if let's say a guy's at 3,500 a day and he starts cutting from there and he goes to 2,800 a day and he starts losing weight, losing weight, and let's say that, that uh, four or five weeks of 2,800 a day with his exercise routine the way it is, uh, you know, let's say he's weightlifting four to five times a week and doing maybe an hour, hour and a half of cardio a week. Um, and then he stops losing weight after four to five weeks. Well, let's say he loses a good four or five pounds of fat in that time. Now he either has to move more or, uh, reduce his calories. But the cool thing is one, and this is what I'll kind of get into. He can, he can exercise a bit more. Uh, you can do a bit unless. Well, yeah, I mean, I've worked with so many people and I, and the vast majority of people, um, what I've found are their bodies are, are similar to mine. And like what I can do is when I'm cutting, I do about five hours of weightlifting a week and about, um, two, yeah, two hours of, of high intensity interval cardio, cardio a week, not very much exercise. It's, you know, six to seven hours, uh, six and a half to seven hours of exercise a week. And for my body, I know that that's about as much as I can do while also running like a 20, 25% deficit without causing overtraining problems. I've tried to do more, uh, and eventually my body just doesn't feel good. My workouts don't feel good. I have low energy throughout the day. Um, but if I keep it in that range, then I feel totally fine and uh, I'm able to lose fat. So what, let's say, so let's say the guy, he starts at 2,800 and then he stops losing fat, which uh, would be determined by weight not going down anymore and waist not shrinking anymore. And you can also see in the mirror as well. Um, so now he has an option here. He either is going to eat less or he's going to move more. I always, my first, like my go-to is move more if you can. You want to use calorie reduction as a, I wouldn't say a last resort, but if you can exercise more, do that. And that means if you have the time for it. And that means if you aren't already maxed out in terms of your exercise, like I just mentioned earlier, there is a max. You can't, uh, where, where I, the, the type of issue I run into more with women, for instance, is um, that, that have been trying really hard to, to get really lean, is they're usually doing too much exercise, especially too much cardio, very, very common. You know, I'll, I'll hear from women very frequently that are doing, you know, they're exercising six to seven days a week, and uh, in, in, and in total time, I mean, in some cases, it's kind of crazy, 12 to, to 15 hours of exercise a week, plus a, a large calorie deficit, that's, uh, that's a recipe for just feeling shitty, overtrained, and especially with women, you're going to have a lot of water retention issues because cortisol, cortisol levels can be out the roof, so that can get real frustrating where they're working really hard, they're not eating that much food, and they just look puffy and soft, and you know, their, their weight's not changing, which you know, ironically, they actually can be losing fat, but they can be replacing the fat in terms of weight with more and more water retention. So, which not only like it obviously it obscures the fat loss on the scale, but it also does in the mirror too, because you just look puffy and soft. It looks like fat. You wouldn't know the difference. Subcutaneous fat or water, you really wouldn't know the difference. Um, so, increase your exercise before you de decrease your calories. Max that out, and you know you're gonna have to learn your body. But I think that. Uh, a, a reasonable ceiling would be probably four to five hours of weightlifting a week and two 
to let's say two-ish hours, give or it's, maybe you could do a little bit more, maybe you need to do a bit less of, of cardio per week. Um, and that's high intensity interval cardio. That's what I prefer to do for fat loss purposes because it's just more effective for fat loss and you, it takes less time. Um, I'm sure you could do, if you only did low intensity walking, of course you could walk a lot more than two hours a week and, uh, you know, not overtrain, but that walking is going to be far, far less effective than high intensity interval cardio. Um, you know, I've written about this extensively on my website. I'll link an article down below, but you know, for example, one study showed that 60 minutes of incline treadmill walking, which is a very common, you'll see that in the, in the gym all the time, especially among bodybuilders. That's kind of like the standard cardio 60 minutes of that was less effective in terms of fat burning than it was. I believe it was six, uh, 15 to 25 second sprints. I don't remember this. I read this study a while ago. Um, so, but it was six sprints with, uh, a, maybe a minute or two of just low intensity in between those sprints. It was a total of like 10 to 15 minutes of exercise, uh, of high intensity interval exercise burned more fat over the next several days than 60 minutes of incline treadmill walking. So that's why I do high intensity interval cardio. And I know that some people are going to say that, oh, you can't do hit when you're in a deficit because you're going to overtrain. I've, I'm just gonna say that's not true. I mean, I've I, not only, not only have I just been doing it myself for years, but I've worked with so many people at this point that do the exact same thing that I've been doing. And I actually can't remember ever hearing from a person once that what I just laid out in terms of total exercise caused them to feel overtrained, um, or, or, you know, cause any problems whatsoever. Um, the only problems that I would, would run into or that I do run into more frequently is overeating or undereating. That's the, those are the problems that, that, that people more run into is that given their activity level, they eat too much or they're eating too little and that can cause problems. Um, and you know, we also have to realize that when we're doing high intensity interval cardio, um, like I, I do it on the recumbent bike. That's what I like. Uh, I like that it's no impact. I like that I can really push myself on my high intensity intervals without frying my legs. Whereas an upright bike is really tough on the, on the quads, which is fine. But, um, I found that it can mess with my squatting actually. Like if I do that the day before I squat, it can, you know, I can lose five pounds on my squat just because of that. Um, so the, the recumbent bike is easier on the legs, but you can still, you're just trying to spike your heart rate. That's really what you're looking to do on your high intensity, uh, intervals. So, um, when we're doing that, it's not the same as a study done with an elite cyclist who is on an upright bike, uh, you know, and on his high intensity intervals, he's going all out pedaling as hard as he can. That's quite different than even someone like me. I mean, I've been doing, um, hit cardio consistently for, over a year now. And so my, my cardio is actually very good and I can push myself pretty hard, but I'm not an elite cyclist. And, uh, you know, I've just never run into any CNS issues or it just doesn't seem to put as much stress in the body as, uh, some people think. Now, of course it depends on what type of hit you're doing. I used to do sprints. Um, and that was rough. I used to do like just sprints outside. I'd, I'd sprint probably like 80 yard sprints. So I'd sprint as fast as I can run and then I would walk 80, walk 80, sprint. So it'd be like sprint 80, walk 160, sprint 80, walk 160 yards. 
Um, and that was tough. That was much tougher on my body than, than what I'm doing right now with the cycling. So I guess it does depend what you're doing. Um, but most people that I'm working with, uh, they, or I'm just, you know, in communication with, they're doing what I'm doing or, or they're doing it on the elliptical or they're doing it on a rowing machine. Um, and again, never run into any problems of, you know, overtraining because of doing, uh, an hour to two hours of hit cardio per week. Now, of course, I've run into people that are trying to do five, six hours of hit cardio per week, and that uh, is a problem. Um, you could you could walk for five or six hours a week and have no problem. So there's no question that hit cardio puts more stress in the body than low intensity cardio. But the the great thing about hit cardio is you just don't need to do that much to to get what you need to get out of it. The whole point of doing cardio when you're when you're cutting is just to assist in fat loss. You're, I mean, that's that's why I'm doing it. I'm not. Uh, of course, it has health benefits, um, but I don't. It's not like I particularly enjoy uh, cardio. I mean, I bring my iPad, and that's when I watch if I, whatever TV show I'm watching. That's when I watch it. Is when I'm doing my cardio. Um, so it's you know, for me, it's almost relaxing. It's like I'm not working for those you know, 25 minutes or whatever. Um, but it's uh, you know, yeah, it, it, it. I if I can get. Uh, the, all the fat loss I need out of, you know, just doing three, four, 25 minute sessions a week. I'm going to do that. I, I don't have any interest sitting on the treadmill or sitting on a stair, stairmaster for two hours a day. Um, and most people are, are of the same mind. So let's get back now to the calories versus moving. So when once, uh, once let's go back to our guy here. He's at 2,800 calories. He's no longer losing fat. He now adds some cardio to his routine. He goes from two days a week to four days a week, 20, 25 minutes per session. And now, now he's maxed out. He's, there's uh, no more exercise that he should be doing. Uh, and then let's say that now gets him another two weeks of fat loss. So he loses a pound, and then he loses a pound, and then he maybe loses a half a pound, and then he's not losing again. So... Now he has to cut back on his calories. Now he has no option. He can either stop here, but if he wants to lose more fat, he's going to have to eat less. So what I've done here, well, this is what I, what, I, what I personally do, is I reduce carbs when I'm cutting. I don't reduce protein. I don't reduce fat because I'm already, my carb intake is, I like to keep my carb intake as high as I can keep it basically because it helps maintain workout intensity. Carbs are satiating um, and you know, low-carb diets uh, just for most people, the low carb experience sucks. You just don't feel good. You have low energy levels. Uh, your workouts are terrible because you have no glycogen in your muscles. Um, and ironically, you don't even lose fat faster. I'll link an article down below, but when pro high, high protein diet, high protein, low carb diet versus high protein, high carb diet, you're going to lose the same amount of fat. And that's been proven scientifically as popular as low carb is these days. It's just like how low fat was very popular, uh, you know, a decade ago or so, because at the time fat was the, you know, macronutrient, the evil macronutrient. So you just want to eat as little as possible. But now the pendulum has swung, you know, hard in the other direction where carbohydrate is now the evil macronutrient that makes you fat and kills you and this and that. And now you're supposed to eat as little uh, carbohydrate as you can, or as, as possible, or it depends on who you listen to. Um, Hopefully, a decade from now, the pendulum is somewhere in the middle, which is the reality of that. That's because not only is it the reality of uh, when we're talking changing your body composition is a balanced intake, a high protein diet, no question. There's just no question that is uh, that is superior for for fat loss and especially superior just for overall living 
well, I would say it's 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 superior for well living, especially if you're physically active. But even even if you're not, uh, the the RDI of of protein of um, 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight has been shown to be uh, not even sufficient for for retaining lean mass as you age. That if you if sedentary people ate a bit more protein every day, uh, they would lose less muscle over time as they age, and that's very important for overall health. So high-protein diet and a moderate carb intake, there's no reason to go super low, but there's not necessarily a reason to go super high either. Um, it, is, it is flexible. I'd say if you're weightlifting regularly, then a higher-carb diet is going to serve you better. Um, if you're not, if let's say you just do some cardio here and there, maybe some body weight stuff, you don't need as many carbs, so you could probably go into a, a, a moderate to lower intake. Um, and, but, you know, in terms of dietary fat, your body just doesn't need any more than let's say 0.3 to 0.4 grams per pound of lean mass. That's really just for, for supporting overall health, hormonal health, cellular health. Um, that's, that's your body just doesn't need more fat. I know high fat is very trendy these days, but it really is just a trend. And, uh, hopefully we, we come to something more in the middle, you know, uh, in, in hopefully five, 10 years from now, or somewhere more in the middle, because unfortunately, like I said, the low carb experience just sucks for a lot of people. Uh, and, and it, it's not a, it's not sustainable as a lifestyle. And also it's not very enjoyable. I mean, there are so many types of carbohydrates that taste great and, and are great sources of nutrition. Um, you know, I, I anything from, from whole grains to uh, starchy type of carbs to fruit, um, seeds, uh, so, so many good ways to get your carbs that are very nutritious for the body and very enjoyable. And I think that enjoyment is kind of, especially these days in how enjoying your diet is, is kind of low on the list of priorities for, uh, a lot of the mainstream diet trends where it's more about, you know, trying to sell a person on, well, this is the, this is the ultimate healthy way to eat, whether you enjoy it or not, like suck it up because this is, if you want to live long and be healthy and not get cancer and die, this is what I have to eat. And that's that type of dogmatic extremism. Uh, it just isn't true. And I'm going to be writing a pretty extensive article on this. Uh, I'm going to be starting on it soon. It'll probably take me a couple of weeks. Um, I've done a lot of the research, but now I have to kind of put it all together and and then write the whole thing. Um, but just on kind of the the healthy diet hoax that there is one true healthy diet. Uh, it's just not true. The, the the human body can can survive and thrive on so many different types of diets. Uh, there are basic guidelines and there are basic uh, fundamentals that you will or, or commonalities between quote unquote healthy diets. But the, what is a, a healthy diet is, is a, that that's a very flexible, um, I guess, uh, description. There's a lot of different types of diets that, that would that could be called healthy. And and part of that, it does relate to enjoyment. Uh, a lot of a lot of the enjoyment we we there's people get a lot of enjoyment from food and not even in a weird way where you know if you're like yeah there are the people that have weird psychological relationships with food and they're binge eaters and they can't control themselves but then there are plenty of people myself included that just like food I like food that tastes good uh, sure I can eat bland food and I don't care that much about food but it's a pleasurable experience to have you know a good meal. And, uh, and for, for many of us, good meals include foods that certain diet gurus would say are 
terrible and have anti-nutrients or and, and are causing our bodies to be deprived of this and that and uh that's so much of that is just bullshit um so anyways that, that that's more of a that's gonna be more of a, a whole nother subject that i'm gonna be writing about but to get back to uh the subject at hand here so we have our guy um that is needs to cut his calories i reduce carbs i because i'm already on a lower fat and i want to keep my fats i don't want my fats to get too low because that's unhealthy um, so I'm reducing my carbs when I'm cutting. And I, what I do is I cut about 30 grams of my, I cut my daily carb intake by about 30 grams. So yeah, about 100, 120 calories is what I'm reducing. And I keep my activity level at the same. Um, I, in working with people, I've found that usually the reduction of the daily intake reduction of somewhere around 100 to 150 calories seems to be the sweet spot for then getting the weight loss going again, getting it back up to that one pound a week or so, which it doesn't exactly even make sense given the 3,500 calories, approximately 3,500 calories uh, of energy in a pound of fat. Um, but, you know, there are other things to take into account um, when, when, we're, when we're talking about energy balance and calories in and calories out. Calories in is fairly easy to, to track and it's fairly easy to quantify calories out is tougher because of things like the thermic effect of food and non-exercise activity thermogenesis and how much how much um uh, how much energy you're actually burning when you exercise so i can't say exactly why that 100 150 calorie of drop uh seems to work best uh, or it seems to be enough to get that weight loss going again it seems it would it would sounds like it would be too little but again, I've worked with a lot of people, and that generally is what gets it going. Some people do need to cut a bit more upwards of, you know, reduce their daily intake by about 200 or even 250. But I would rather err on the side of too little of a reduction because if you can get that weight loss going again by reducing by 150 a day, I'd rather have you do that than reduce by 250 a day. So cut carbs by anywhere from, let's say, 25 to 40 or 25 to 35 grams a day. And then see how your body get the weight loss going again. And for me, what I've noticed is once I have to do that first reduction, I generally have to reduce every week or two the same amount again. So what I personally do with my body is I do a 100-calorie reduction. And then so let's say – let's just for simplicity's sake, let's say it's a Monday. I'm going to reduce my, my calorie, my daily intake by 100. I'm going to pull out 25 grams of carbs. And then the next Monday, I'm going to do it again. The next Monday, I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to do it again, and th that keeps my weight loss steady. And especially, this is especially important as you get lean and want to get really lean. Like if you're already as a guy, 10%, 9%, as you're a girl, 19 20%, and you want to get really lean, uh, this reduction is going to be necessary. There's just no way around it because as your body fat levels uh, get lower and lower, your leptin levels get lower and lower, which means that your metabolism is slowing down. It's not particularly unhealthy. It just is what it is. So you're trying to stay ahead of that and keep your body in a deficit, essentially. Um, so I reduce calories like that, keep the weight loss going, and then I stop at when I am around BMR, I won't go, maybe I'll go 100 calories below BMR for, for the final week just to get, if I want to get whatever I can get out of that last week. But then I stop reducing at that point. Um, you don't want to get into a situation where you're eating hundreds of calories under your BMR because it's just that is unhealthy and that your metabolism is going to continue to slow down. And all it means is it's going to take you longer to get back to a, 
uh, a healthy metabolism in, in a sense and it, get, get your metabolism back up to speed. So once you get down to your BMR, then now you start flipping it the other direction where you're going to be increasing your calories slightly every week to speed your metabolism back up and you're going to gain little to no fat as you do this. It's called reverse dieting. I'll link an article down below so you can check it out. Um, but it's very simple. You, the, the, the easiest way to do it is to increase your, your weekly intake by 100 and bringing your carbs back up. And then as you, once you've gotten your carbs back up, let's say, you know, increased by 50 to 75 grams, you're then starting, then you're bringing your fat back up. And again, it's laid out in the article, but it's a very simple, very workable way to just come out of a cut and get, so where your, your intake is, you know, quite a bit lower than, than where it could be given your activity level and getting it back up to that activity level. So that's pretty much everything on the uh, on how to cut calories and how to how to use calorie reduction and exercise uh, you know more exercise to to keep the fat loss going and if in that whole period of reducing down to your BMR or under BMR if you haven't reached your fat loss goals then you reverse diet back up and then you start the process again very simple um, so yeah let's move on to the next. All right, so the next is a question from Charlie Bill uh, from Kentucky, and he says, doesn't necessarily mean you are not recovered enough to work out a muscle group if you are still sore, and is it possible to not be recovered enough even though you don't feel sore? And uh, those are good questions. So um, first, yes, you can still, just because a muscle's sore doesn't mean that it's not recovered. Uh, I'm going to link an article down below that I actually wrote on this. So if you want to dive into it even more, you can. And, you know, actually the, the physiology of this isn't totally understood from, from at least the research that I've read on it. Um, there is a theory that some of the soreness that we're feeling is more related to c connective tissues uh, that, are, that are holding muscle fibers together as opposed to the muscle fibers themselves. So the muscle fibers may not even be that damaged, but the connective tissue is and you feel that. We also know that the, the more muscles are exposed to certain type of stimuli, the less sore uh, that you, you get. And certain exercises can cause quite a bit of soreness, um, but not a lot of muscle growth, which is another kind of myth I wanted to just talk about quickly is that because a lot of people think that workouts need to make them really sore. And if you're really sore, that means you're really building muscle. And uh, that's not really the case. The, the research has shown that the, the correlation between um, muscle soreness and muscle growth is, is pretty weak. Workouts that make you really sore don't necessarily help you build a lot of muscle and workouts that don't make you sore can actually help you build a lot of muscle. Um, and it sounds counterintuitive, but it, you know, it's true. And I've experienced that myself as well. I used to do very high rep type stuff and, and always be trying new types of routines and, and exposing my muscles to new type of stimuli that would make me really, really sore. But I, I of course I built muscle doing that. Um, cause I stuck with it over long periods of time, but I built, I've built a lot more muscle, uh, working out the way that I work out now, which is a lot, 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 not, not, I don't do like, I used to think muscle confusion. I had to change my routine all the time and I don't do that anymore. My routine is built around the big, you know, big compound lifts, squats, deadlifts, big presses. And then I do change some of the additional stuff every, you know, eight weeks or so. But these days I don't get very sore. Um, even to the touch, like I, uh, even when I get massaged, uh, you know, yeah, my legs get a little bit sore, my back gets a little bit sore, but nothing, nothing major. I don't even notice it until I'm getting worked. And, uh, so doing those types of workouts, I've built a lot more muscle, even though I don't really deal with soreness issues anymore. Um, like for instance, downhill running is known to, to make people's legs very, very sore, but 
you're not going to build big legs or strong legs doing a bunch of downhill running. So back to the question, if a muscle group is sore, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't train it. It more depends on when did you last train it and uh, how is it, how is the performance? If you just trained a muscle group, let's say you did a bunch of chest pressing or on, on Monday and now it's Wednesday and your chest is sore and you want to do it again, you're probably, that probably is going to, you, your chest probably hasn't recovered from the first workout. If you, if you did a heavy workout on a Monday, there's no way really actually by Wednesday that it's going to be fully recovered. And you'll notice that not only in soreness, but you also notice that in performance, your, your uh, strength is going to be way down. That's a more reliable indicator. If you're, if you're not able to do what you did in your last workout, then you probably are not recovered yet. So, you know, if you were benching 275 for sets of five, and then a few days later you put up 275 and you can only get two and it hurts, then you're probably not recovered. Um, but, you know, some people, they stay sore for, it seems to be inordinate uh, amounts of like longer periods of time. Like someone chain, tra- tra- trains their chest on, on a, let's say a Monday and then they don't, haven't done anything else on it and, on, and come Sunday it's still sore, then I would say that that is much more likely to be something other than muscle fiber issues because they could probably do a good warm-up. And, uh, I mean, that's just plenty of time for a muscle group to recover. Even people that recover slower could, could you know, be safely train their chest again on a Sunday. I would say probably, like, uh, in, in my Bigger Than Your Stronger program, I have guys do chest work on Monday and then do a bit more on Thursday um, just because that – it seems to be enough time, enough recovery time for, uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of a heavy Monday and a lighter Thursday. Um, so that, that works well. And, uh, it, it's more a matter of, you have to figure that if you're doing a, a tough, intense workout, it's going to take your body no less than 48 hours to repair that muscle. But that, that's being very optimistic. Um, ba- I, I, I go into this in, in my book, uh, bigger than or stronger, also in thinner than or stronger, go into more of the research on this. But if we take the average person, we can assume that it's probably more like anyway, four days, give or take a day, that it's going to, if you have like a heavy type of bigger than or stronger workout, which entails about, let's say about 60-ish heavy reps, that's going to take your body, uh, you know, probably four days or so to, to fully recover and be ready for the next workout. And whether you're sore or not, I mean, some people, like I said, that applies to me also. Uh, My body, I've been working out for so long, my recovery may be a a little bit better, but I can, I can, you know, I did heavy deadlifts yesterday. I don't feel anything in my back, but I I worked hard. I couldn't go deadlift. If I tried to go deadlift right now, I'm sure not only would I feel some soreness, but I just wouldn't be able to perform. My muscles have not recovered, even though they feel totally fine. All right, so that's all on that one. I'll keep that short and sweet. Let's move on to the next, which is carbs late at night, carbs before bed. Is that a problem specifically for fat loss? And the, and the answer is no, it's not. Um, in the first edition of Bigger Than Your Stronger, I had spoken about this and was and, and referenced some research regarding uh, growth hormone production that if you know elevated insulin levels can blunt growth hormone production. Growth hormone induces uh, lipolysis, which is the when, when fat cells release their stored energy to be burned. It's called lipolysis. Um, so if, and, and, and a, a large amount of your growth hormone production occurs uh, in your first phase of, of deep sleep. Um, so if you're eating a bunch of carbs right before bed, does that large insulin spike, which is going to last several hours, is that going to blunt the production of growth hormone it was kind of the, it was the theory, but 
since writing the first edition of Bigger and Stronger, um, I've you know the new research has come out, and I've read a lot of lot more, and, and also worked with a lot of people. And uh, I, I took that section out. Of the, I took that out of the book because it just it, it actually seems like it just isn't a problem. Your body learns to deal with it essentially. So you can eat your carbs whenever you want. Um, I there is not going to be a big benefit of eating your carbs late at night. I know that like carb backloading is um, I guess semi popular, which is where you're you're um, basically saving all your carbs for your big post-workout meal and you work out later in the day. Uh, I'll link an article I wrote down below on it. I think, I think it's cool that it teaches people that you can be very, be very flexible with your food intake and you don't have to follow any kind of rigid dogmatic. You have to eat this at this time, or you can't eat this at that time or whatever. But, um, I think that as a, as a protocol, it's very oversold, overhyped. Um, it's, it's not the secret to, you know, recomping or, or, uh, losing fat, which is losing fat and building muscle. Um, so, you know, I'm not gonna talk a lot of shit about it, but, um, I think, it, I think it's, it's over, it's oversold. Um, but what you should know is that you can, if you want to eat a lot of carbs at night, you can do that. Like if you have late dinners and you like those dinners to be very carb dense, do that. Or if you work out late, you know, let's say you work out at 10 PM and you like having a lot of carbs after you work out and then you're going to go to bed. Cause a lot of, um, let me even be research on this. I feel like I've seen that, a large carb meal before going to bed can lead to better sleep. I feel like I've seen that somewhere. I know I've run into people that prefer it for that reason because it keeps them full throughout the night and they just feel good when, you know, they're going to sleep with, uh, that, that, I don't know if it's a carb, you know, euphoria, carb high or whatever, but they like it. So totally fine. As long as your daily numbers are where they need to be, um, you can eat your food whenever you want, really. The only thing I would say is that it's probably a good idea to have some protein before and after you work out. The research is a bit contradictory on this, but there's, there is research that shows that over time you'll build more muscle doing it that way. Um, and then there's research that will say that you, that you won't. It's hard to, it's, in my opinion, the scales are kind of balanced on that. It's hard to uh, choose one side or the other. So I just, just, you might as well be safe. Like it's not that hard to just have uh, I just use whey protein. So have a scoop of whey before you work out, have a scoop of whey after you work out, have some carbs too. Uh, if, uh, I mean, I just like having carbs after I work out cause it feels good. And, um, it's, it's, it's a good opportunity to eat your carbs cause you've kind of created a carb sink in a sense. You've depleted your, your muscles of glycogen and they're in a prime state to, to absorb that back. Um, again, it's not a huge thing, but, uh, it's a kind of a, why not? Like, yeah, if you can't one day, then it's not a big deal. But as a regular routine, most people, they, they also enjoy that, which as I was saying earlier, enjoying your diet counts, enjoying how you eat counts and looking forward to your meals counts. Um, so yeah, that's really it on the carbs. All right. So now last but not least, I want to kind of go over this cool scorecard concept. So I thought it's kind of cool. So a book I read recently called peak, which I've recommended, I think a couple times, and uh, I do recommend it if you are an entrepreneur um, or, or interested in, in building your career, um, really regardless of what it is, I highly recommend this book. Uh, but basically in the book, there was um, a little anecdote. I, you know, Maybe he just got it from somewhere else. He was telling it as if it actually happened to him. I'm not so sure. <laughs> but basically uh, the story is so he's playing golf with uh, – let me see. Yeah, he's playing golf with – who is it? Oh, whatever. Playing, I made some notes here, but, but playing golf with somebody and playing terribly and the other person was good and he's getting all frustrated, you know, that 
he's never going to be good at golf. And, and the person's reply was, well, just because you have a high handicap in golf doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. And, and also kind of uh, to extrapolate that to life, just because you, if you have a high handicap, and if you're not familiar with golf, a high handicap means you're bad. Uh, it means that uh, you are shooting, you, it takes you quite a bit more shots to get the ball in the hole than it should, essentially. Um, so just because you suck at golf doesn't mean, just because you suck at the technical, you know, uh, game of, at the technical aspects of golf doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it. And, and the concept is, it just, you know, yeah, you have your scorecard and you have your numbers that, that measures the technical ability that you have, but there are different types of scorecards that you can keep. Uh, like he gives some examples, how many squirrels did you see on the course? How many cloud formations did you see in the sky? How many times did you get your grandpa to crack a smile when your silly jokes, maybe he's playing with his grandpa was a story. Um, you, just remember, you can decide which scorecard you want to use in life. I really like that concept because the scorecard that if we take that golf analogy or take that, that just that golf example and kind of apply it to life, of course, the scorecard that people uh, are most concerned with generally is, is money. And that's the scorecard that many people, you know, that we often judge ourselves on the most and judge other people on. And that, in my opinion, is just a bad scorecard. It's just whether, and, and I'm not saying that like, I don't say that as somebody that dislikes people with money. Um, I mean, I, I, I make a fair amount of money doing what I'm doing, and I grew up around money. I, I know quite a few people with a lot more money than they even know what to do with. So I have nothing against rich people in general, the 1% or any of that shit. I don't care about any of that shit. Um, I, I'm just saying this really from, from this is just my kind of viewpoint on it in that because if you put too much importance on the scorecard of money, uh, I think – there are several negative aspects of that. And one, for example, is um, I, I can uh, really uh, apply this to, to what I'm to my work. So Muscle for Life. Muscle for Life is a pretty big website. It gets about a million visits a month. It's growing very quickly. Um, you know, big email lists and I have quite a big, quite a, quite a following on social media, blah, blah, blah. And the reality is it's under monetized. It really is under monetized. It makes money, of course, and it sells, uh, it pushes a lot of sales to Legion. It sells a lot of books. We sell a lot of meal plans. But given the, uh, the, the size of the website, um, you know, I, for, I was speaking with someone recently that, that had a fitness website. Um, I think he said it was doing about 50,000 visits a month. Now, it was set up to just sell affiliate products. It wasn't set up to really be all that helpful just to make money. And I think he said he was doing about 90,000 a month profit um, on 50,000 visits a month. So when he heard my numbers, he was like, it, it almost was like offensive to him. You know what I mean? He was like, you, you should be doing at least a million dollars a month profit, at least a million dollars a month profit. Um, and my kind of rebuttal is, Yes, MFL is under monetized and, you know, I'm going to be doing some things to address that. I mean, I don't, obviously I'm, I'm all for opportunity. Um, like I'm going to be launching a store and I'm going to sell all kinds of cool stuff in the store. A lot of stuff I recommend, I'll just sell myself. Uh, I want to sell shirts. I want to sell posters. I want to sell, there's a lot of cool things I know that people would actually enjoy uh, that, that I could sell. Uh, I'm going to be producing kind of like a flagship information product, which is going to have a whole bunch of video content and, um, you know, whatever. I have some various ideas and things that, yes, will make a lot of money. That's fine. But my, my, oh, my scorecard with MFL is not just money. If it were just money, 
like a lot of people, especially in the internet marketing world, then I would that that'd be the that's like the obvious direction for people like that. Like, why do you care what you're promoting? I like if you've noticed on MFL, I only advertise my own stuff. I advertise my books. I advertise my supplements. It's not because I don't have offers to advertise other people's stuff. If I didn't care what I advertised in MFL, I could right now uh, be generating an additional mm, probably $75,000 a month in advertising. That's profit. Just that's $75,000 into my pocket every month if I didn't care. If I was just, you know, I, I, I just did it this morning. I emailed by another company, Digital uh, advertising company where they have a bunch of clients and they want to advertise an MFL and, uh, you know, this space, this health and fitness space is very, very expensive to advertise in. Um, advertisers pay a shitload of money to, to run ads on, on websites, especially a website like MFL, which has a very loyal following, very, very good analytics, very, very good, uh, demographics and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it, it could be, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I actually, if it would be more along the lines of about a hundred thousand dollars a month, uh, if I, if I also threw in some email stuff and paid posts and stuff like that, probably could pretty quickly get it up to a hundred thousand dollars a month in my pocket by doing that. Why don't I do that? Because my scorecard is not just money with MFL. My scorecard also is in it. Uh, how I am connecting with people. That's why I spend a lot of time answering emails and answering comments. I want to be, I want to actually be helpful to people. That's more what my scorecard is. And if I'm advertising products that I have used myself and uh, are, I think are good and I know are going to help people, then that fits that. And that's why my recommendations, for instance, on MFL, those are all things that I have used myself uh, that like all the supplements um, good science behind them, the gear, everything, because that's actually helpful. But if I have some advertisement on the side of the website, let's say that is like for some, you know, let's say it's just garbage supplements, some other supplement company. Uh, one, I mean, it wouldn't quite make sense because I have my own supplements, but let's just say that was the case. And you, as a reader, you go click out, or even AdSense, same type of thing. So, so I put start putting AdSense, uh, you know, in my articles. AdSense alone. Um, I was talking with, uh, well, it was with that same person actually that was kind of like offended by how, comparatively speaking, how little money MFL is directly generating. Um, he's saying that AdSense alone, probably $30,000 a month. If I just put AdSense up, $30,000 a month in my pocket. Um, but again, you know, who's on the AdSense? Now, yes, we, I, I can, I could control the type of uh, companies that could that could advertise on on AdSense, and I may look into that. I mean, I don't want to add too much clutter on MFL, and so I think it's already kind of a bit cluttered. I need to take a look at reducing the amount of the side nav stuff and whatever. But um, so again, the point is, if I just didn't care, and I just you know, but you as the reader now, you click on an ad and you go waste your money on some stupid NO supplement or something like that uh, that's telling you it's gonna you know as good as steroids or whatever. I've kind of done you a disservice. Uh, so that's why I haven't done that. That's why I'd rather just advertise my own stuff. I'd rather put it in my own store and sell things that I can feel good about and I know are going to help. And, you know, yes, that even all doing all that, it will, MFL makes less money than it could. Even if, you know, through the store and through, uh, well, I, 
at a there's a point where having a store and then advertising where you really create uh, an e-commerce ecosystem kind of like bodybuilding.com obviously everything that's advertised on the website you can buy on bodybuilding.com that's an ideal type of situation and i want to go more in that direction um, because then i can control uh what i am promoting because people are coming to me and they're trusting my recommendations and you know that matters to me but to some, and that's because my scorecard is different. Sure, I care about money, but money is, uh, the, the, it delivers diminishing returns. There's a point where, you know, if you're jumping from making $30,000 a year to $60,000 a year, that makes, that makes quite, a, quite a difference. Uh, from 60 to, let's say, 100, that makes quite a difference. 100 to 200 makes less of a difference. 200 to 500 makes even less of a difference. 500 to a million, less and less and less and less. You know, unless you have, unless you just want to live the most extravagant type of lifestyle and, uh, you know, you want like, you need personal assistance and you need chef and you need uh, mansion and you need cars and you need all that stuff. But even that, you know, okay, so if you're that driven for stuff, uh, then what's that? A few million dollars a year and you can have all that. And then what? So, you know, from... And most people, though, are not are not like that. Like, yeah, you know, people like to have nice things, but uh, people that most people, at least that I know, that have worked hard for their money, are are a bit more frugal with it. Like, yes, they they have nice things, they live in nice homes, they drive nice cars, but uh, they in, relative relative to their income, they're not very extravagant. Um, so, you know, that also applies to uh, applies to Legion as well. Um, you know, when I, when I first went to my manufacturer, I may have told this story before, but, um, I'm not sure. So I'll just go through it quickly. When I, when I launched was launching Legion and, uh, Jeremy and I first went to our, our, the, the manufacturer that, that we were using, um, and we gave them the formulation for pulse, the first formulation for pulse. So it actually had a bit more in it. Um, stuff like alpha GPC that's so expensive. We just didn't know. Right. So. Uh, but our, our, our account rep came back to us initially, like, this is wrong. Like he knew we were new to this. So he's like, Oh, just, just so you know, you guys, like, this is not what you want to do. This is, uh, way, way too much, way too many actives. This is way too expensive. Like, this isn't going to work. You should, um, here, here, here's our, here, here's what we recommend. And they sent some garbage proprietary blend pre, you know, this is the, uh, that'd be the normal way like that people would, they just go, yeah, give me some shitty propylene product. I don't care. Right. Someone, let's say in my position where I would go, if all I cared about was money, if that was like my scorecard was dollars in the bank and that's it, then I would have just said, Hey, people buy what I tell them to buy and I want to make as much money as possible. So I'm going to make a pre-workout for $4 and I'm going to sell it for $50. And there we go. My, my scorecards and look real good. Um, that's what the manufacturer is assuming because everyone that comes to them, that's what they do. Um, so when we were explaining to them, I had, to, I had to go back and forth like three times actually, like, no, we're doing it differently. We quote that formulation. We need to see how expensive it is. And they would come back and be like, almost like trying to give us business advice. Like, you, know, you trust me, you don't want to do this. Like you don't want to do it differently. It's not going to work. You can't spend that much on a product and get anywhere. So we were just like, his name was Todd. We are like, Todd, just shut up and quote the product, dude. We're, we're doing it, whatever. If, you, if, it, if it fails, then it fails. This is the way we're going to do it. And um, uh, ironically, the, I think the first formulation came back at like $40 a bottle or something like that. That cost, my cost. So obviously that doesn't work. Um, so then we had to like, we had to kill off a GPC, for instance, because that stuff was so, I don't even remember. It was like 
$200,000 per kilo or something. It was absurd. So um, anyways, then we got it down to a formulation that we have now, which allows us to make enough money to run the business. But, you know, obviously, when you compare it to other pre-workout formulations, you're going to see that it has a lot more of the good stuff than anything else. It has a lot more citrulline malate per serving, uh, betaine, beta-alanine, and so forth. Um, so it's also with Legion, that's been our uh, our kind of guiding that, that scorecard, yes, of course, to make money, but also what is more important to us, though, is producing good products that actually help people, that people are – because I know I, I used to waste so much money on supplements. I used to go into GNC every month or two and probably spend like two to $300. <laughs> Because I would just go to the back and be like, yeah, sure, I'll try that, I'll try that. And, and then I wouldn't really necessarily listen to the sales guys. I would just kind of try things. And so I know how annoying that is to just waste money every month. And eventually I was like, all right, well, all this shit's just worthless. So I'll just, you know, I, I, I kind of pared it all the way down to just um, protein, creatine, and a pre-workout because I liked something to get me going before I work out. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the moral of the whole story is um, – you can, I think that there's value in just keeping that in mind that the, how you are determining whether you are winning or not is you don't necessarily like defaulting to what other people would, would consider, uh, is, is not, is not necessarily going to be good for you. There are a lot more, uh, important things than, than just making money or I guess another one out there would be um, achieving like recognition. Sure, I think recognition is cool, and uh, but it, it can get a bit narcissistic where people are not just trying to achieve recognition; they're trying, they have a, a desire to be admired. You know what I mean? They want they want to be famous. They want people to recognize them and tell them how awesome they are. And uh, that's no, that's also something I have no interest in at all. Like I, I, I don't consider myself a celebrity at all. But even if I ever got to that point where I was a celebrity of known whatever. I don't desire that actually. I'd much rather just kind of be anonymous to be honest uh, because I like doing my work. I like staying in touch with people. I like helping people out. I don't care if I'm, you know, if I'm going to get a bunch of public recognition for it. I just don't care. Um, I guess maybe the only thing that would be cool about celebrity is you would, you get access to, interesting experiences that you don't get access to otherwise that would be the only thing i would actually care about um so anyways that that's it i'm not going to ramble on and on about this but uh if uh if you like that concept i definitely recommend you pick up the book peak by a guy named chip conley um a lot of a lot of great insights in the, in that about work and about uh running a business and you know working in a business and dealing with investors and and and, and then kind of finding your your calling i guess and I guess you could say. So um, that's it for the podcast. I hope you liked it. And uh, have I'm going to be lining up a lot more guests. So we're going to get back to that. Uh, but for now, I'm just you know, doing one myself. So, um, oh, last but not least, uh, my book launch, it does end. You know, I'm launching the second editions of Bigger, Leaner, Stronger, Thinner, Leaner, Stronger. That whole thing, I'm giving away like $10,000 in stuff, real stuff too, not like PDFs that I say are worth $100 each, but real hard goods. Um, and that's ending this Thursday, which the day, uh, it's Thursday, uh, tomorrow, uh, hello. So yeah, tomorrow the 19th. Uh, so by the time this goes up, I think this is going up tomorrow. So it's going to be today, basically that it ends and you can, you can check it out at muscleforlife.com forward slash launch. And, uh, yeah, that's it. All right. See you next time.